understand geopolitics, you must have the freedom to be honest. The More Freedom Foundation podcast. Uh, hello Rob, how are you? Hey Rory, not bad, not bad, yourself? Yes, I'm keeping well. Just before we get tucked into today's episode, there was one little, uh, I think I'll call it a conspiracy red flag. I'd like us, if we ever, if you're ever watching anything, listening to anything, there's one wee thing I think you should always look out for, and it's coincidental times. Have you noticed this? I uh, have not. What is this? Anytime, well, I, you know, I was watching ones that were big into, say, QAnon and stuff. Mm-hmm. And anytime they would say, oh, isn't this suspicious? They would kind of just bring two random dates and go, this happened in the same week. Watch out. <laughs> so I was watching a guy talking. It was basically like, oh, America's just funneling money into Ukraine. And he says, isn't it suspicious that Biden did this thing the same week that FTX was launched? It's all just to funnel money. And I was like, I think the CIA are very good at funneling money. They don't need a crypto exchange that collapsed. So they love coincidental dates. Something happened on someone's birthday. Someone went here. It's funny. Things just are always happening all the time. And if you look into it enough, you can you can find multiple things happening on the same day. And sometimes those things uh-huh. are significantly connected. Uh, as you know, today we're going to be talking about a ton of significant connections through a bunch of things that might seem unrelated. Uh, but often it's just two things that happened. But also, if you look hard enough, there's only, what, 365 days. So if you're like, well, let's look at all the crypto things okay, this one launched the same week, good enough. <laughs> yeah, you can find, there are enough crypto things. You can. Oh yeah, you can find so many parallels if you want that don't really mean anything. It's funny you mentioned cryptocurrency, Rory, because that gets to what I want to talk about, or at least in part. Oh, you're going to tell us what to invest in? Uh, no, I think we're going to, I'm going to avoid that. Um, uh, I'm not, I have made very few uh, crypto investments and they were not, not successful. Uh, n- none were really. Uh, but this is definitely related to cryptocurrency. And I think it would probably be a little unfair to say that cryptocurrency caused the current U.S. banking crisis. But it was certainly intimately related. And a lot of the entrepreneurs and venture capitalists behind cryptocurrency have also played a fairly disgraceful role in launching what I believe can fairly be described as a full-on banking crisis in the United States. A banking crisis, that sounds bad. Yeah, you'd you'd think so. It certainly brings up pretty grim memories uh, going back to 2008. Uh, This is a huge, huge thing to worry about. I don't think we're anywhere near at the same scale of 2008 my read, uh, as a somewhat semi-educated person on this topic, is that the chances of falling into a 2008-style crisis are pretty low, but it's unnerving to be going through a crisis like this. There's some aspects. Had to start somewhere, so it could, could it snowball? It could, of course, snowball, and I think that a lot of folks are at this point now a solid uh, over a week since this started up on Thursday, March 9th. We're recording this on Friday. A solid week later, uh, the Federal Reserve, other large banks have thrown a lot of ammunition at this uh, problem, at this issue. 
And the concern is that the issue just doesn't quite seem to be going away. It's, it's a strange set of circumstances that U.S. banking finds itself at this point. I don't think anybody is comparing this to 2008 yet. Because back in 2008, the issue was the entire banking system, not just in the United States, but worldwide. We've certainly seen some contagion so far. Uh, my understanding is that Credit Suisse, a large Swiss bank, is having an... Inter I think it might be the second largest in Switzerland. Yeah, it's a big deal. Um, and it uh, qualifies as a GSIB. I'm not entirely certain what it's globally, systemically important banks, I think is what that's, or something along those lines. So Credit Suisse is, I believe, technically a systematically important bank. But my understanding is that Credit Suisse has been having trouble for a very, very, very long time. If you look at its stock price over the past couple decades, it looks like it never even recovered from the financial crisis. And Credit Suisse seems to Just, be... Just uh, limping along? It's been limping along, and Credit Suisse seems to be having a rough time because banks are under some degree of scrutiny. And folks are really unnerved because the, the story was that we'd kind of solved all these problems with the Dodd-Frank banking regulation. Uh, it was a huge, huge post-2008 financial crisis banking uh, regulation. And it was a pretty unpopular, most people seemed to hate it, all the, all the way up until 2020, when we had this incredible systemic crisis because of COVID, and banking looked like the healthiest sector around. It, it seemed to not be suffering the impacts that everything else in the economy had suffered. So we'd sort of assumed that things were things were going over all right. Things were going okay. And then, uh, uh, just a week or so back, uh, things started really, really falling apart. This story, to some extent, starts with crypto uh, and crypto's somewhat spectacular failures over the past year. But it's also- What could go wrong of crypto? It's perfectly signed. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, indeed. Everybody's, everybody's, it's renowned uh, for its stability and uh, lack of fraud. Uh, the, lack of shysters. Indeed. Indeed. The, the whole crypto uh, realm, really, really what renowned. But it would be unfair to blame exclusively crypto and crypto uh, pushing personalities for what happened here. Uh, it's also down to the Federal Reserve. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank didn't go out of business because of crypto. There's actually two other uh, smaller, but I think similarly, no, smaller, significantly smaller, but still somewhat large banks that have gone out of business in recent months. Um, Signature Bank in New York City and Silvergate Bank, which I believe is in San Diego. Those two bank failures seem to be much more straightforwardly crypto related. But Silicon Valley Bank, the big mahuna, the thing that's made everybody very nervous, uh, went out of business in part because of a lot of really undisciplined and uh, dangerously networked depositors, but also because of its investments in U.S. Treasury bonds, uh, supposedly. Because isn't that something that makes Silicon Valley Bank unique? Usually a bank makes money by taking Rob's money they then lend that money to me and then they charge a difference. They give Rob a small interest rate and then they charge me more. And essentially that's how a lot of banks make their money. But Silicon Valley Bank didn't have me. I wasn't taking money out. So all these rich um, Silicon Valley companies 
were getting, you know, payrolled by, you know, Elon Musk or the Saudi oil family. And the money was just staying there. So to make money from it, they were investing in, you know, American treasuries and in the mortgages of American citizens, if I'm right. Well, that's so most... I think you're getting a really important parts of the story right there, but uh, all banks, uh, my understanding is all banks or all banks above a certain size, and Silicon Valley Bank was certainly above a certain size, have massive businesses investing in a broad range of securities. There used to be more uh, institutions in the United States uh, that did operate in that fairly straightforward way. We take deposits and then we give people loans for houses and you know we, we don't get too much into the financial chicanery. Uh, that era, uh, there was actually a whole, a whole genre of banks called the savings and loans. And then Reagan came to power and deregulated the savings and loans so they could get into all kinds of financial chicanery. And by the end of the 1980s, all of those savings and loans had failed quite dramatically at the cost to the U.S. taxpayer. Uh, so most banks in the United States, certainly banks above a certain size. I mean, the United States, we definitely do have credit unions. We have much, much smaller institutions that, you know, as people... It can almost, For mom and pop sort of businesses? Yeah, mom and pop banks, uh, for lack of a better term. And I'm way outside of my wheelhouse here. I could be getting this entirely wrong. But my understanding is that there are a whole bunch of smaller banks left in the United States. Uh, some are called credit unions and of other types that really do focus on the sort of serving communities and these very straightforward, fairly safe ways. But it's almost a political choice to bank with one of those institutions now because it's so much easier to bank with one of the massive too-big-to-fail institutions or one of the mid-size institutions like uh, Silicon Valley Bank and the other mid-size institutions that are under so much pressure right now. So uh, the problem and part of the root of the problem, Murray, is actually that Silicon Valley Bank's investments in these treasury securities are not strange at all everybody's invested in these treasury securities. In fact, uh, it's a requirement of the Dodd-Frank uh, reforms that a certain level of the capital of every bank is invested in treasury securities or something similar. So yeah, it's, uh, it is not strange. And that's the problem. That's the reason why people are so worried about these banks all of a sudden is the fact that the treasury securities are not worth what they paid for them. So while I'd love to just exclusively blame crypto failure for this uh, unfolding disaster we're experiencing right now, the truth is that the, the, the nemesis of uh, the crypto pushers, uh, the Federal Reserve, is in fact, to some degree, responsible for what happened here. Because essentially the fact that inflation has gone up has meant that these banks are a lot less profitable. Absolutely. That has definitely had something to do with it, which is a bit surprising because if inflation goes up and interest rates go up, you'd expect that there'd be more room for banks to play and, and have fun and profit. The problem is that they were all required to one degree or another to 
purchase these debt securities, whether it was in 2015 or 2016 or 2017, all the way up until 2022, these debt securities before the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates. And now that the Federal Reserve has started raising interest rates and you can buy a treasury bond, uh, I'm not sure I'm using this lingo appropriately, but you can buy a bond that pays out, that has the federal government paying you an interest rate of 5%, then the bonds that the government issued in 2020 that only pay out 2%, well, nobody wants those. And that, unfortunately, is a significant chunk of what every bank in the United States is holding on their balance sheets. So that's why people are getting worried. That's why folks are worried. Now, there's just because these securities are worth less than what a given bank paid for it isn't necessarily that important because these securities will eventually pay out what the, the folks paid for them. Some of them- It's just going to take a bit longer. It could take a year. It could take five years. It could take 10 years. It could take 30 years. The problem with what happened to Silicon Valley Bank specifically is that they were honestly too successful in 2020 and 2021. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank is one of those really helpful things in finance in, in that it, it its name is a pretty good indicator of what it was. Uh, it, it was the bank of Silicon Valley. It didn't just happen to be there. Uh, Silicon Valley is a uh, it is a physical region. I believe it's it's to the south of San Francisco, right, or, or something like that. But it, yeah. it's it's in the sort of San Francisco region, and it is where the largest tech companies in the world are all based. More importantly, for Silicon Valley Bank's uh, purposes, it's also where you go, or at least where you used to go before COVID, and I think it's probably where you will go going forward, to set up a startup technology company. So in the low interest environment that we've had pretty much since the 2008 financial crisis, uh, money has been desperate to find a way to propagate itself. Rich folks have not been able to make money loaning money to governments. Uh, so they've really loved these startups and a lot of startups I would argue a lot of crypto startups have been heavily funded uh, that probably never should have been funded. Uh, and we've learned that they really never should have been funded because these huge chunks of cash that these startups have gotten, a lot of them were just sitting in Silicon Valley Bank. And what happened on Thursday, March 9th, uh, apparently... You know, it, this could have been one of a number of factors, but it really does seem like this bank run started in a WhatsApp group. The venture capitalists who funded all of these startup funders uh, who got worried about Silicon Valley Bank because of some poor communication on Silicon Valley Bank's part and started a bank run. So, yeah, there was one big investor who sort of won. You know where some investors are so famous? It, whatever they do kind of spooks the market. From what I understand, a, a big one basically took all his assets out and that made everyone go, well, if he's taken them out, he generally knows something more than most of us, so we'll take it out. And it's one of those things, every bank can't keep, you know, you could do a run on any bank theoretically because they never have all of the money. Yeah, they don't, they, it's no bank has all of the cash instantly available. 
Peter Thiel is the name of the uh, people pronounce it Peter Thiel, Peter Thiel. Uh, that's the guy you're referring to. A uh, really famous, uh, famously successful investor. A bit like a Warren Buff- Buffett type. I wouldn't go quite that far, but uh, if... But sort of in the sense that people really respect uh, what he does and feel if he says something that you should really listen. Well, he's honestly become kind of a hate figure uh, on uh, the left for Democrats, uh, not just on the left for Democrats. Uh, for a lot of folks, he's a he's a weird dude. He's probably the wealthiest member of the PayPal mafia. Have you heard of this uh, this group? Well, I know Musk. Is he one of them? He is indeed. It's a a sort of selection of alumni of uh, PayPal, uh, a company that we're, we're familiar with. Was one of the the first wave uh, tech boom, uh, really successful companies. Uh, Elon Musk famously is probably the most famous member of the. PayPal Mafia. He founded Tesla and SpaceX off of his PayPal earnings. Early investor. But Peter Thiel, uh, Peter Thiel used that money to fund Facebook. He was an early investor. I don't think he was the only one. And he's had a really large political profile. Uh, he's the biggest Silicon Valley supporter of Donald Trump. Uh, he famously killed uh, Gawker. Uh, which was a media um, media organization that had, I think, outed him as a gay man, so not a nice thing to do, but he destroyed the media organization by funding, I believe it was a uh, professional wrestlers. It was the Hulk Hogan tip. He bankrolled him. Uh, litigation. Yeah, he bankrolled Hulk Hogan to destroy a media organization. So yeah, Peter Thiel is not is not anybody's favorite uh, favorite character. And he has managed to add another institution to his uh, kill list, or rather, uh, list of conquests. Uh, so yeah, Peter Thiel was big on this. Uh, a whole bunch of other uh, sort of moderately famous Twitter personality VCs like David Sachs and uh, Jason Calcanis, I think his name is, uh, really built panic. Um, and by Friday, they'd done their work. By Friday, March 10th, they had killed Silicon Valley Bank. And Silicon Valley Bank was a well-respected institution. Silvergate in San Diego, Signature in New York. These were banks that were obviously, well, Silvergate had failed, uh, I believe, a, a number of weeks back. Uh, these were institutions that were famously playing around with crypto and doing risky things, trying to connect to the real financial markets and the crypto financial markets. Move fast and break stuff, those sorts of people. Yes, uh, they, they, they moved fast and they broke their banks. <laughs> uh, so nobody was particularly surprised. There was mostly just a lot of uh, schadenfreude, mostly just sort of a lot of amusement on the part of people like me at the collapse of those banks. But Silicon Valley Bank was an institution, a big institution, a respected institution, and folks seeing that made a lot of people very nervous. Bank that's been on sort of death watch all week long is First Republic, which is uh, the most famous of this similar class of banks. It's First Republic has no exposure to uh, crypto, limited exposure to tech. They are a San Francisco bank, which might be why they've become the most uh, prominent uh, target. But they're 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 national. Um, and generally, they're just known for having a bunch of staid, um, sort of generally pretty comfortable uh, depositors who like the bank. But 
people are worried. Uh, there's something interesting here that I think is worth, worth mentioning is that folks are worried about these mid-sized banks. They're not worried about small banks because of something called the FDIC, uh, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Is it uh, 250,000? Exactly, exactly. If a bank has 250,000, if your bank account is under $250,000... Which would be the vast majority of Americans. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The, an additional aspect to this is like, very few of the 1% are stupid enough to keep their money in a bank account that is over $250,000 anyway. Having $250,000 of cash is a poor investment, is a poor use of investment money. Yeah, you should have it in, well, you know, treasury bills. Uh, uh, anything? Land? Anything. Spacecraft? Uh, most likely securities. That, that sort of tends to be. And securities are, um, well... Uh, they're more secure. If you're, if the institution that you're trading those securities with goes under, unless they've been engaging in some really egregious fraud, it doesn't actually matter. You still own those securities. Maybe it'll take you some administrative difficulty in getting those securities transferred to some other uh, organization, but you don't lose your money. Uh, it, it is quite extraordinary. I think Roku, uh, which is a is Roku Inter Roku International. I think it's a streaming. Oh yeah, yeah. It's about yeah. It's like a. It's a. It's what is it? It's similar to Netflix, wouldn't it be? But it's sort of built into the TV. Yeah. Uh, so Roku, I think, has distinguished itself as among the most poorly managed companies in history, because uh, there's a certain amount of operating capital that it may it might make sense for a company to maintain week to week. You know, oh, we've got a payroll of. X million dollars, okay, we've got X million dollars in the bank, but I think it looks like Roku just had half a billion dollars of cash sitting in this bank, uh, which is just, it, it, it's just, it, it beggars the mind. That money should be out working. Exactly, Rory, exactly. And I'm not a particularly sophisticated investor or corporate type, but that just struck me as, as mind-blowingly irresponsible, frankly. So, oh, sorry, the concern. So, smaller banks, nobody's really concerned about because most depositors there are fully... Because Uncle Sam's got them covered. Exactly. And the larger banks are not a concern. And this is why this sort of plays into a dynamic we've been seeing for the past year, which is sort of a recession for the rich, but not for anybody else. Um, and what we've got here is kind of a... Will we get the world's smallest violinite? Exactly, exactly. And what we've kind of got here is a financial crisis for the rich as well. Um, so it's actually at both ends, uh, the, the little banks and the big banks. Nobody's really worried about the big banks because the structures of capital and infrastructure around keeping the too-big-to-fail banks going is so carefully crafted by the Dodd-Frank legislation. The only banks that folks are worried about are these really big, mid-sized banks. Rich people maintain, stupid rich people, maintain chunks of cash over a quarter million dollars. Uh, so it's a, very, it's a very strange set of circumstances. There really isn't much of a point to these banks. Maybe I'm, I could be entirely wrong about this, but there isn't much of a point to this class of banks other than providing better service to rich people. Uh, so rich folks, if they wanted their money to be entirely safe, they could go to the big, the big banks. But at the big banks, if you've got less than 
forty million dollars at a big bank, you you can't get anybody to. I mean, you can you can go into a talk to a teller and maybe they'll be helpful, but you can't get anybody to return your phone calls. The whole point of a First Republic or a Silicon Valley bank or some of these other folks is to make uh, wealthy but not extremely wealthy people feel a little more appreciated. Give them bankers to talk to, this, that, and the other thing. And it, it, it is kind of fascinating that those are the banks that are in trouble. And it contributes to the pretty extreme injustice of what happened on Sunday, Sunday, March 12th, which was a bailout. Because I've noticed a lot of um, uh, some of the tech funds are going up. There's been a small wee rebound on some things, and it seems to just be everyone's repeating the money printers go burr. Um, not quite. The not quite. Just a small uptake. The uh, I think it's the I think folks are looking at this as if this is the reversal. This is the point at which the Federal Reserve goes, oh, okay, time to let the money printer go burr. Uh, we've given up, quantitative, quantitative tightening's over. Maybe we're gonna stop raising interest rates. Maybe we'll even lower interest rates. And I don't think that's actually what happened here. I think what happened on Sunday was a bunch of sort of, uh, this is last Sunday, I guess it'll be two Sundays ago by the time this is published, um, was conceivably, the Federal Reserve... Sunday the 12th of March. It, it's an open question. It's entirely possible that this is the Fed uh, switching gears and money printer goes burr. Um, or it could have been the Fed being overly generous because they don't want to switch gears. Because they wanted to squash this problem so that they could continue raising rates. Uh, so they can continue uh, with quantitative tightening. Who's to say? Uh, but what I do think is obvious from like a moral standpoint is that it's pretty freaking outrageous that some of the supposedly smartest people in the country, definitely some of the wealthiest people in the country, and it turns out some of the dumbest people in the country have been fully bailed out by the U.S. government. That is pretty damn clear. Um, and this is in the context of a country where uh, Biden's very carefully caveated, very carefully means tested and and minimal little bit of debt relief for students has been held up in court uh, for for a de uh, for I think a year now um, and then basically on Friday a bunch of rich guys who killed their own regional bank started really screaming all weekend long and this was probably the most disgraceful bit these venture capitalists who killed this bank by starting a bank run then started screaming through Twitter and elsewhere about how if the federal government didn't act, that every regional bank in the country was going to fail. So they were essentially saying, if you don't give us our bailout, we're going to continue, we're going to do what we did to Silicon Valley Bank to everybody else, which is extraordinarily irresponsible, extraordinarily disgusting, frankly, and uh, was completely rewarded, completely rewarded on Sunday, uh, March 12th. When you say a regional bank, does that mean a normal bank for average Americans? No. So regional bank is the term that they use to distinguish between a local bank and a systemically important bank. Okay. So is it these medium ones you're talking about? So regional banks are... Yeah, I, I, it is very confusing. I googled it this morning myself. Uh, regional bank is... I, I was like, what does regional actually mean? And it, it seems that what it means is it's a distinction between 
the local, the community-based banks, the, the legitimately small banks that that do the credit unions. Yeah, uh, well, credit unions and other types. Yeah, that legitimately do serve a local population. And then there's the uh, the GSIBs, the global systemically important banks. And then there's in between, it's the regional banks. Uh, so that's just the term that is used to apply to banks like Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, Silicon Bank, First Republic Bank. You think threatening something like that would be borderline illegal? Uh, it's, you sure would think so. Uh, there is activity that was undertaken on Friday uh, and over the, over the course of the weekend. Uh, sort of March uh, 10th through 12th weekend, uh, that is probably legally actionable. There was a guy from a long-deleted Twitter account who was publishing just outright lies about the status of one of the banks uh, because he had a short position. That is market manipulation. That is something... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that is something you can definitely get prosecuted for. I'm sure the Securities and Exchange Commission, if they can figure out who that person actually was will, you know, start a court case against him in 2025. You know, it's, it, it's, we don't have, especially in like the past, after the past 40 years of sort of Reaganite starving of the administrative state, like we don't have the resources necessary to stop that sort of thing in real time. The government does have extraordinary capacities. I mean, what the FDIC has been doing, essentially, you know, closing down uh, Silicon Valley Bank on Friday and by Monday morning, they sometimes can do this from a, they can do this from a Wednesday to a Thursday, uh, basically accounting for everything overnight and making sure that the bank is open with normal operating business hours uh, for everyone who's, who needs to use it up to the $250,000 uh, insurance level. So there are parts of the U.S. government, U.S. system that have been working extraordinarily well. But as we've unfortunately seen with Elon Musk, the powers of the Securities and Exchange Commission, we've seen repeatedly with Elon Musk, the powers of the Security and Exchange Commission to enforce, uh, not necessarily legal, but just sort of in t uh, appropriate behavior among CEOs and investors uh, have been really diminishing over the past 40 years. Do you think we're going to get to a breaking point? Well, I think our, arguably we're already there. I see a lot of positive things in some of the appointments that Joe Biden has made. If we were to continue, if Trump were the president right now, you know, he were replaced eventually by some corporate Democrat in the Clinton or Obama mode, and we kept on doing that for another 10, 15 years, uh, I think you'd really be able to start talking about revolution in the United States. Not, 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 uh, not Bernie Sanders or uh, Trump himself becoming a little too uh, successful electorally, but, but serious, serious social strife. Uh, what's nice about uh, the Biden administration is I do see certain steps being taken that would, that indicate to me that we're getting away from that, that, that possibly uh, we can do what FDR did back in the 1930s and actually make capitalism a little safer. One advantage of Biden I'm aware of is that he's been in this uh, machinery for a very long time. He knows how Washington works, and I don't think he's intimidated by the rhetoric within it that may have spooked the likes of Obama or Trump. That's a great, great point. Uh, for It seems like almost every, well, 
I guess since Johnson, or I guess Nixon was pretty much an insider as well, but it seems like almost everybody we've elected over the past 40 years has been some kind of outsider, some Southern governor or, or something along those lines, or charismatic half-term senator that Obama was. Uh, and it, 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 it's the, the presidency is a really bad place for on-the-job learning, but that's what we've had pretty much up until Biden uh, for, for, gosh, yeah, since, uh, since Nixon, honestly. And, and that is one of the great virtues of Biden is that his BS detector is pretty, pretty strong. Uh, we wouldn't, I think Biden knew enough to stand up to the generals who wanted to keep Afghanistan going forever. He knew enough to be able to stand up to the Chamber of Commerce and a bunch of other... Trump did try to leave Afghanistan, didn't he? And was basically ignored, which is kind of treasonous. Yeah, quite quite treasonous. But it's not just with Afghanistan. We also see Biden uh, being able to stand up to the business lobby and appoint... I mean, he's appointed a lot of people that the business lobby likes, but he's also appointed some really key personnel at places like the Federal Trade Commission that are willing to stand up uh, to big business and actually start doing some of the basic work of making capitalism work for the other 80% of Americans. Uh, most importantly, it was probably, and most hated by congressional Republicans, uh, was the refunding of the IRS. He basically gave the tax police the money they needed uh, to begin to start operating appropriately. We were getting to like grease levels of tax compliance. We weren't there yet, but it was it was beginning to get there. On the way. On the way. And I think that's an extraordinary step forward. You know, and to some extent, the ability just part of it is just a necessary backlash financially. Uh, but part of it is, I think to some extent, the character of the Biden administration. But this recession for the rich is really, it, it's what we've been experiencing. Inflation required the Federal Reserve to reverse course on interest rates. Interest rates were at zero or near zero pretty much. There was a period of time between 2016 and 2019 when uh, then Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen, I believe, uh, tried to lift rates a little bit, but they barely got off the floor and then they gave up. So really for a 15-year period, interest rates were really low. And what we- Which meant loaning was free, essentially. Exactly. And what we had was this really grim Great Recession recovery uh, that involved a lot of the rich getting much, much richer uh, because of all the financial chicanery and just hogwash and startups and private equity and fun, you know, stuff that you could fund and, and turn into money spinners because it didn't cost anything to, to borrow money. Uh, while the rest of the people in the economy saw no forward progress, if not an actual an actual fall down. So what we've seen since... And then house prices were accelerating at a time when people were just still getting paid roughly the same? Uh, house price accelerations, I... Depends on what region you're talking about. There was a really across-the-board uh, acceleration of real estate prices during COVID. Um, and before COVID, there were certainly uh, serious hikes up in prices in certain desirable areas, but it was really only in the true insanity of 2020, where you had not just interest rates crashing back down to zero, you also had a ton of, you know, the Fed money printer and then 
the actual, you know, real U.S. government was also throwing money at everything. So that's when things went went really, really crazy. And yes, people got also a lot richer. Um, but what was nicer about the COVID period was that it was a little more broad based uh, because of, you know, we, we essentially had a universal basic income for the first year or two of COVID with that everyone, everyone who lost their job got their desperately inadequate state unemployment benefits and then massive weekly 600 bucks a week, I think, from the federal government if you lost your job due to COVID. It was, it was a universal basic income, essentially, for a couple of years. So a lot of wealth was able to be built at sort of lower levels in the economic distribution, which was great. And um, that money was sort of held on to. Unfortunately, a lot of those benefits ended. I mean, some of them had to end, but some of them could have been maintained. Child tax credit would be something that I'd argue for. Uh, but with the interest rates, uh, just about a year ago now, because of inflation, interest rates started hiking. And what's happened since is fascinating. There's been this ex expectation that uh, the economy would crash because that's kind of what you need to... Uh, stop inflation uh, through the the, me the method of interest rates. We could also probably tack and tackle inflation through tax hikes, but good luck getting making that happen. But for the past year, interest rates have been going up, and the expectation every quarter has been that, oh, the economy's going to die down. And a year later, unemployment is still 3.5% in the United States. Yeah, it's shockingly low. Back before uh, 2000, honestly, I think back before 2020, people didn't believe that it was possible for the unemployment rate to go down that low. So we've got this fascinating set of circumstances where over the past year, I mean, let me look at the um, S&P 500. Over the past year, while interest rates have been up, the stock market, which people had become so used to just constantly going up and up and up and up, and then you know, you show up the next year and it would go up even more fantastically than you can imagine. Over the past year, stocks are down 10%, uh, but the bottom 80% or what, the whole country, anybody in the country who cares to uh, be, is massively overemployed. And thanks to the essentially universal basic income that we had over COVID, a lot of folks who were in really desperate financial situations have been able to crawl out of those uh, situations. I still don't believe, I believe that uh, federal student debt has been on a hiatus for, I think, three years now. Maybe it's finally just getting started again. Does that mean that the price hasn't increased year on year? No, it means that people who owe student debt haven't had to make any payments for three years. That's incredible. To give me an idea, what would the average student debt a year be? Uh, student debt for uh, three or four years that they wipe out some qu quickly. I have friends who are still paying off debt for, you know, in their 40s for their undergrad career around the turn of the century. Wow. And the really screwed up thing is they owe more now than they did when they took out the debt. But how much would it be? Would it be 40000 or 20000 a year? How much would it be? Oh, uh, you, what, in terms of what you have to pay back every year? I know. Um, how much does uh, you know college cost a year in America? And then obviously that's added up to... I looked at these numbers recently and they were like shockingly higher than even I could have imagined. My... My undergraduate un education 20 years ago cost about 120 grand. A year or in total? In total. In total. Still a lot of money. But that's not including my living expenses. 
And if you're taking out debt, you're also taking out debt to fund your lifestyle at that point. So that was, and that was 20 years ago. It's just gotten higher. So it's entirely possible. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So much higher. No, I mean, there's a lot of differing uh, programs and approaches. There's, there's a join the army. Well, you can join the army uh, at at competitive institutions. You know, not everybody's paying that full price, paying that full ticket. It's it's somewhat analogous to health insurance in the United States. If you look at your bill and you're someone who has health insurance, it's absolutely horrifying the amounts of money that you're supposedly paying, but there's, you know, there's discounts, there's this, that, and the other thing. The upshot is that people end up taking out extraordinary amounts of debt. And if you end up going to a professional school, something where you're expected to be able to pay back much more money, you have people graduating medical school, law school, business schools with undergraduate and graduate cumulatively like half a million dollars in debt. Uh, that, half a, that probably overstates it a little bit, but easily a quarter million dollars. I'd, I'd say that I wouldn't know. I don't know if that's the norm, but it's certainly possible. It's almost like indentured servitude in a way. That is a very fair way to describe it. Uh, there are some of the architects of this system who are on record. The genesis of this system was actually seen in some part. Uh, this can be exaggerated, I think, as a result uh, or a response to the student activism of the 1960s, and the 1970s, where the folks in charge were like, basically, like uh, these kids are too free. Uh, with this education, to you, you add U.S. individualism plus a free education, uh, these kids are too free to change things, and we don't like it. So let's saddle them with debt that uh, restricts their options. That's a really cynical reading of things, but I think it's also kind of what happened um, if you look at the fall in political consciousness in the youth of the United States over the past 50 years. So that's a positive outcome Biden's had? Well, no, Biden's, uh, yeah, I don't think Biden- He's frozen it. Well, he's frozen it, yeah. He has He has frozen it. Um, so that's at least something. Well, but I think that freeze ends like now. Um, I, I, I'm not sure entirely what the, I haven't gotten the exact dates on that, but I, I, I'd either fro ends now or ended a couple months back, I'm not entirely certain. That might actually also be held up by the same car court process that holds up his uh, student debt. Finances in the United States, huge mess. Uh, and when you consider, I think we initially got here because we were talking about ways that Biden has improved things slightly. And as somebody who's like a you know stakeholder in the American empire in the status quo in the United States, this is very much what I want. I want someone who improves things slowly and carefully, uh, rather than the Republican option, which is make things worse in as anarchic a way as possible. But you also have to blame trans people while you're at it. That's a good point. Uh, you can blame trans people. You can blame the Mexicans who are now voting Republican in large numbers. Divide and conquer. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's mostly just anarchy. You know, I really, I kind of feel like Republicans are all just like the serious the attempt to make a serious governing ideology out of like the worst ideas of the angriest like 16 year old punk rocker you know that that is i think that's that's the only way that i can judge the republican party it's like if if you took the most nihilistic and drugged up uh teenager from a broken home took their politics and tried to make it into um 
uh, a governing ideology, that's the Republican Party, um, as far as I'm concerned. How are the Republicans treating all of this uh, banking fiasco? Well, it's kind of interesting because, no, it's not interesting. It's just incredibly stupid. They're trying to say that, oh, Silicon Valley, the problem is Silicon Valley Bank uh, went broke because it was woke, uh, which is just 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 nonsense. Like we, it, it's it's complicated to discuss, but it's not like impossible to discuss. Uh, just the the simple. I think we've done a, a mediocre to decent job of describing like the simple dynamics that led to the failure of this bank. They owned too many treasuries uh, with poor risk management and didn't hedge them. And then they had a weirdly undiversified depositor base that panicked and started a bank run. Um, that's why Silicon Valley Bank went under. But the Republicans, Fox News generally just have the same, they have the same stupid script that they want to use for everything. Uh, it's also really funny watching them try to, to blame the Securities and Exchange Commission for allowing all these terrible crypto failures, uh, Silvergate, Signature Bank, FDX, what have you. Uh, they're trying to blame the SEC for not regulating hard enough, even though a lot of these same Congress people have been working very hard lobbying the SEC and legally constraining the SEC from doing that regulation. Uh, so it, it's it's quite, uh, quite absurd. It, was there some legislation that Trump could have put forward but didn't that would have prevented this bank from collapsing? Well, so this is a contentious issue. It's kind of the opposite. There was a deregulation that Trump put forward in 2018. So I can't pretend to know the details of this, but they're the reason why the too-big-to-fail banks, uh, the GSIBs, uh, have been so successful throughout the COVID period and uh, nobody's really questioning them now. I mean, their their stock prices are going down a bit, but only a little bit. Nobody's really concerned about these banks. The reason nobody's concerned about that is because of the Dodd-Frank regulation and the requirements that are put on them. It's something called stress tests. There's regular, I mean, the compliance offices of these massive banks, there must be thousands of lawyers and accountants constantly working with the federal government to make sure that they're still viable. That used to apply to every bank that was larger than $50 billion. Because the Silicon Valley Bank in particular uh, led the charge in under Trump in 2017, 2018 to raise that cap to $250 billion so that Silicon Valley Bank and a bunch of other regional banks could get under that cap and not have the same level of regulatory scrutiny. And it's quite poetic uh, to see the CEO that led the charge for that deregulation uh, have his bank fail. That was a Trump-era deregulation that if it had not happened, this none of this would have happened. No, we, we, we would not be in this situation without that Trump-era deregulation. Because Silicon Valley Bank, you, it makes you think it's kind of like a tech bros recent bank, but it's been around since 1983, so it's almost a legacy bank at this point, and, well, not a bank anymore. Not a bank anymore. Well, I think it's still operating. The FDIC is operating it. Okay. Uh, but And their hope is that to be able to sell it. And HSBC has bought the UK branch of it. Yep. Yep. Um, but they're having a lot of trouble selling the American version. Um, I'm not entirely certain why, but uh, it's, uh, it's a mess. 
It's immense, and it continues. Well, if anyone's listening, you could maybe buy Silicon Valley Bank's American branch. Yeah, so. if, if you're you know if you're up for it, sounds like sounds like that could be a good time. A bit of a challenge. We well, we've established that you've got uh, some of the worst depositors on the planet. Uh, you've got a bunch of snotty, entitled idiots with too much money who tend to uh, rip their money out of the bank uh, with no thought of the consequences. Uh, so, yeah. Well, it, well, it was a WhatsApp group. Yeah. Like, if they say it's bad, you've got to take your billions yeah. out. Yeah. Well, then, and I, actually, you know what, Murray? I think I've, I think I've resolved that mystery. I, I think I can see why nobody wants to own Silicon Valley Bank. Consider it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Here, give, give us X billions of dollars so you can have the depositors that destroyed their bank and threatened to ruin the U.S. and world financial system. Yeah, I, I can. I, I guess I can see why the U.S. branch of Silicon Valley Bank isn't uh, isn't uh, just just hopping off the the best prospect, hopping off the shelf. Uh, one of the most extraordinary things I just I just have to mention this. So I've I've talked a couple times about uh, Dodd Frank. Uh, Dodd Frank, uh, you know, it's funny, you would have thought they would have gotten a Republican and a Democrat, but I think it's Chris Dodd, a Connecticut Democrat, and Barney Frank was a Massachusetts Democrat. Very flamboyant, Gary Frank, a great progressive hero. But also, Dodd Frank, Gary Frank, uh, Gary Frank, the, the, the congressman who left, gave his name to Dodd Frank, was a board member of Signature Bank. Uh, which is the other bank that went under uh, the March uh, uh, March twelfth? So Signature Bank is the third largest bank to go under since two thousand in America. Yep, that makes sense. That makes sense. And and Silicon Valley was the second biggest. So number one was Washington Mutual, which went uh, bust around two thousand and eight. Yeah, but I do think it's kind of extraordinary that the guy who put his name to the regulation that saved that has saved the banking system throughout COVID was the director of a bank that went under uh, this uh, this past week. I think that's there's something there's something weirdly poetic about it. So here's hoping, man, that the this remains a recession for the rich, but it is really unnerving uh, to see what's been happening in the U.S. banking sector. I think that the big the too big to fail banks will remain safe. This will remain a problem for a certain class of banks. There's a possibility that the problem's already behind us. I wouldn't guarantee that, though. Uh, and I also wouldn't guarantee that it won't uh, turn into a uh, 2008-style catastrophe. It's good there's not like a Swiss bank in trouble. Oh, there's definitely a Swiss bank in trouble. There's definitely a Swiss bank in trouble. Uh, but then Credit Suisse has been in trouble for quite some time. So who knows? Who knows? Who knows what the Fed's going to do? Who knows? But it was definitely something that I felt like we should talk about. And uh, we've done it. So ultimately, you feel the future will be bright for the average Jew? I would hope so. I sure would hope so. But uh, banking crises are not, not, they're not good things. They don't lead to good things, historically speaking. And, and they're rarely good for the poor. No. They almost never are, which makes this past year of, of sort of recession for the rich quite quite fascinating, honestly. The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is Rob O'Law, and he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire, What It Was and How the U.S. Can Do Better, and music provided by Kevin MacLeod.